tell you where we're going. You've already sensed it in the uh, children's message. The, uh, the church of Jesus Christ has a job. You have a job within the body of Christ. What is the church's job? Of what great task are you to be a part? Jesus gave the church's job description at the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I want that great task of the church and your place within that task, I'd like to rest that to rest in the background of your mind as we open the scriptures this morning. Um, we're continuing to make our way through the book of Exodus. We are at the end of chapter 2. So if you have a copy of the scriptures with you, let me invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 2. We're going to pick up where we left off at verse 23. Moses spent 40 years as minor royalty as his brothers groaned under their burdens, then he tried to deliver them in his own strength and failed. And so he spent the next 40 years as a shepherd in the wilderness of Midian. And during that time, Pharaoh died. And uh, the Pharaoh who knew about Moses' crime and had put out the death warrant on Pharaoh, he died and there's a new king. Exodus 2.23, during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. So you got a new pharaoh Israel cries out, God hears, God remembers his covenant, he saw, and he knew. You know when a little child um, experiences some loss or some sorrow that we as adults are just ever so familiar with, um, you might hear those words, strangely comforting somehow, I know, I know. You have sympathy and you have support in those words. Well, Israel is, you know, Israel has God as its support. He sees her affliction. He's in, in, in his perfect timing, he acts to deliver. So he chooses an agent, a messenger, our hero Moses, chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now this is the first time we encounter Mount Sinai. Uh, Horeb and Sinai are the same place. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, 
Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you are, on your, which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now that fire that does not consume the bush, that's a fascinating image, isn't it? And a lot of truths about God are uh, revealed in it, depicted in it. Uh, Aren't we all like thorns and thistles, like the grass of the field here today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace? Uh, And yet, the Creator and Lord of the universe, whom the angels continually proclaim as holy, 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 dwells with us, dwells in us. And that's just one reflection on the image. Like so much of the Old Testament, it is enigmatic to say the least since it reveals so much in pictures. But uh, but we don't want to lose the flow of the story. So ponder that as you will. But for our purposes... The uh, to understand the story and why it's here, it's enough to note that this is really an attention getter, isn't it? And it worked. It got it got Moses' attention, and so he turns aside. Well, what does it mean when God says that the ground on which you're standing is holy? Holiness is uh, it's principally a matter of being set apart for divine purpose. We have a common bread that we might eat. You might have had some last night with dinner, but then you have the the bread that was set apart in the tabernacle or or the bread that's set apart for us when we do the Lord's Supper. Uh, There's the common Israelite who, um, you know, he's holy as compared to the Egyptian or the Canaanite. Uh, But then there's also the Levite who is set apart to a more specific purpose of God, right? Uh, so he's sanctified to divine purpose with a greater specificity. Well, Paul says the, uh, the unbelieving spouse in, in a marriage where one's a believer and one's not a believer, the unbelieving spouse is made holy by the believing spouse. That is, they're brought into the community where God's word is known and revered so that the promises that were offered to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are also offered to that person, even though they have not yet professed their faith. So you get the idea of holiness, right? It's it's not common because it is set apart for divine purpose. And the more closely associated with God's purpose or plan or activity, the more holy it is. God has manifested his presence in this bush at this place. So Moses isn't to draw near yet, but, but he's there in this place, not too close, shoeless and afraid to look. This place is special, different from every other geographical location on the planet, precisely because it's here that God determined to enter into a covenant with his people. But if we fast forward past the empty tomb, to Pentecost, into the age in which you and I live in the plan of God, 
where God has poured out His Spirit on us all. Paul tells us explicitly that if you don't have the Spirit of Christ, you don't belong to Him. So in every single Christian, God has taken up residence. What's holy now? It's not geography. It's the church. It's you and me. We are declared to be saints. That is, we are sanctified. We are hallowed, set apart. We're set apart to live lives that are different from the world, holy lives, and to teach others to live that way, the way Jesus taught us to live. That's at least one of the ways in which we're the salt of the earth. But but this geography in our story, the bush and the mountain it's on, the ground on which Moses stood, That's just part of God's old covenant imagery that depicted for us what he was planning to do in Christ. So God's got Moses' attention. Now verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So God's come in compassion, and he's intent to deliver his people from their sufferings and deliver them into a land of plenty. And all that is good with Moses. Uh, He loves his people. In fact, he tried his own hand at delivering them once, you know, 40 years ago. So uh, if God wants to take this on, great. He's good with that. That's awesome. The problem's the last thing he said there. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Egypt, Israel out of Egypt. So um, as, we'll, as it's going to come out in the end, uh, Moses just doesn't want to go. Egypt has put a bad taste in his mouth or something, but you know his excuses move from the very reasonable to the absurd. And... Uh, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? It's very reasonable, right? Uh, I mean, he had been perfectly positioned, at least from a human vantage point, 40 years ago. Now he doesn't even live with his people. He's a sojourner in a foreign land, and he has no position in Egypt from which he might act. He may not be on the most wanted list anymore, but there's nothing special about Moses in Egypt. So Moses has been humbled, but just like me, because just because I've been humbled doesn't mean I don't need humbling. That doesn't make him a truly humble man yet. But it's coming. God's making sure of it. So he hears Moses' objection, and, uh, and, and God has no qualms with it. That's a good objection, actually. True enough, you are not sufficient for such things on your own, but you will not be on your own. 
I will be with you. He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. (laughs) You notice that sign that's given? What do you make of that? I mean, typically, we we think of a sign as something you either get before you go on a mission or maybe during it, but it encourages you toward the end, right? And yet, in this case, the sign that God is really the one sending Moses is something he's not going to get until he's gone to Egypt and delivered people out of his Egypt and brought them to the mountain. You know, I'm, I'm really hesitant to provide any real hard and fast answer to why the sign's given that way, but my hunch is that leading the people out of Egypt is not the completion of the mission for Moses. It's really actually just the maiden voyage. Um, He's going to need plenty of encouragement once the people are out of Egypt, as we'll see. Uh, But I would also suggest that that Mount Sinai is, in fact, a sign of God's sending Moses. But in being that, it becomes a sign of the one like Moses who was to come, whom Israel hoped for, Jesus Christ. So now Moses tries another, somewhat less reasonable objection. The people of Israel didn't recognize that you were saving them through me 40 years ago. I know, I know it was a bad idea, but if I go back now, in whose name should I say I come? It's kind of interesting that Moses doesn't ask God his name. He, he does it in a roundabout way. You know, if, if one of them should ask what your name is, what, what would I say? So... Moses says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name, what shall I say? Now, this is a really important thing, right? God revealing his name. Now, we've seen the name of God, this covenant name of God, many times already. Anytime you see in your Bible, most modern translations, if they, if they print the word Lord in lower caps, that's the four-letter name of God. And uh, we don't really know how to pronounce it. Um, but uh, what God does here isn't so much reveal that four-letter name as it is to make a word play on it. Uh, He associates his name with the verb to be. God said to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. But that was the word play. And the word, you know, word plays aren't just fun little jokes in the Bible. They are very serious matters. They're revelations of deep truths. God alone is self-existent. Every other being or thing is created by the word of God and is sustained by the power of the word of God. And once again, uh, this is a fruitful thing for meditation, but it's a word play. Um, So God doesn't leave it at that. And by the way, the the word play wouldn't have even made sense to them if they had never heard that four-letter name of God. Um, So having made his word play, he answers the question more directly. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. 
this is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So, question answered, question answered, and now a direction is given. So he gave the answer. Now, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. I love that translation in verse 17, I promise. In Hebrew, it just says, I say. But when God says it, it's a certain promise. Now, look at verse 18. God is explicit that they will listen. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless he's compelled by a mighty hand, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it, and after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and daughters. So shall you plunder the Egyptians. I love how he only asks for a three-day festival in the wilderness. Why? I mean, is this a lie? We know, you and I know, that that would not have been enough. Take notice of, uh, but, but that doesn't really matter. Um, what matters is that this is, exceeding, this, this is an exceedingly reasonable request. All they're asking for is a three-day festival, and that is refused. So, Take notice of verse 19. Unless he's compelled by a mighty hand, he's not going to let you. So I'm going to stretch out my hand. And that hand language, that's going to be handed off to Moses. Uh, it, it's Moses' hand that God's going to use. Uh, he is with Moses. Moses is his representative, his ambassador. So God gives his agent Moses a preview of what's going to happen. He's telling him point by point how this is going to go. You're going to go with the elders, because he's already told them that they're going to believe him. You're going to go with the elders, uh, but Pharaoh, he's going to say no until I compel him. Oh, and don't worry. Uh, when the Israelites leave, they're going to be well compensated for all their labor. But now Moses explicitly contradicts God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. They will say the Lord did not appear to you. Does that look impertinent to you? Do you remember how Zechariah was struck mute for even questioning the angel's word about what would happen with his wife Elizabeth? <laughs> I'm waiting for... Lightning to strike. 
And yet, notice how tenderly our Lord deals with his chosen servant. And let's face it, uh, as, as God well knows, Moses kind of has a point. I mean, his concern about Israel is pretty well-founded. Um, if God hadn't just told him that the elders would listen to him, I'd find no fault with this objection. God knows the end from the beginning, and so rather than rebuking Moses here, he encourages him. He gives him the ability to do signs, to persuade the elders that the Lord, the God of their fathers, is with him. And whether or not the signs were necessary, Moses does them. The elders believe. They do go with him. So here they are, chapter 4, verse 2. The Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? He said, a staff. He said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put it out his hand, and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. I love how he runs from the snake. But then God makes him grab it by the tail. Would you be hesitant? I think I would, right? But, but truthfully, that would be so stupid because which is more dangerous, the snake or God? Now, this sign may bear a lot of meditation, and who knows if I'm right or not, um, but as I ponder the use of the staff in, in, the, in the story as we go through it, um, it's coming up over and over again and it's, it has to have great significance to the action, the way it comes up. And we know that Christ became a curse for us. That's why our fathers will look at the image of a serpent lifted up on a pole in the wilderness in order to find healing. So the staff turning into a snake and then back again, it's enigmatic, but wow. Once you... Once you know what happened on the cross, lots of Old Testament images start to just fit the gospel. So, so pay attention to this staff as we go through the story. Uh, the staff is significant, and so is the hand of Moses. Verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6. Again, the Lord said, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign, but even if they, if they won't believe either of these two signs... You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So you've got the snake staff where Jesus becomes a curse for us. You've got the, the hand of God's servant, the agent of his power. You see that hand become unclean and then clean again just as Jesus bears our guilt upon himself, but is raised in his inherent righteousness to power. 
And then you got the water to blood. We'll try to talk about that imagery when we come to the plague. But, but God has answered every objection Moses has. He's promised power and support, even demonstrated privately what he planned to do. And now chapter 4, verse 10, we get yet another excuse. You want a leader. And that ain't me. I ain't good at convincing and speechifying and stuff. You need someone who can talk well. Gifted at speaking publicly. I'm not your guy, he says. But Moses said to the Lord, I, I, Oh, my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, but I'm slow of speech and of tongue. Now, anticipating our application a bit, how many of us have been hesitant to enter into a conversation about spiritual things or offer a spiritual contribution to a, a conversation where it fits? How many of us have, have hesitated because we were afraid we wouldn't know what to say? My hand is raised, um, I'm ashamed to say. So God reminds him and us that not only did he make man's mouth, he also made ears and eyes. So he can fill Moses' mouth, and he can fill yours and mine. And when he does, he can also open the ears that they might hear. Open eyes that they might see. How many times did our Savior say, he who has, an ear, has ears to hear, let him hear? Then the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So finally Moses is out of excuses. And he just admits that he doesn't want to go. Verse 13, but he said, Oh my Lord, please send somebody else. And that's when God gets angry. He will meet every need you have Every excuse you might have has an answer. But unwillingness, that is what makes the Lord's nostrils flare in anger. Then the, Lord, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, is, not, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. Why? Why is he coming out to meet you? Why is he already on his way? Because God knows the end from the beginning. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. Moses may have thought that this was a negotiation, but God knows every objection he's going to raise, and he's already sent Aaron on his way. And when he sees you, he says, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with your mouth and with his mouth. And I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Okay, so let's return to our original observation. The church has a message to share. In our story, God appeared to Moses with wonderful news, news of deliverance, news of salvation, and he tasked Moses with delivering that message. Yes, it would be met with resistance, but God promised to be with Moses. 
Okay? As we noted at the outset, Christ has given us a task of acknowledging him before men, of raising up disciples and grafting them into the church community through baptism and teaching them to renounce sinful ways. And God has promised to be with us. So far, it's the same. Mission assigned, God's presence assured. Yeah, but what if we're not eloquent? Turn to Matthew 10 for me. It's in the context of persecution, uh, being hauled before the authorities. But if it's true there, I'm confident it's true any other place or day we speak uh, on God's behalf. Verse 19 says, When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. Well, just... As here, God promises to be with Moses' mouth. And look, it's a silly objection anyway. Uh, you, you do know what to say, don't you? If you are a communicant member in this church, you have testified that you believe a simple but profound message. If you're a covenant member, you are being taught that message in the hopes that you will one day profess it publicly. So the content, what to say, that's pretty simple. I mean, it can be as complex as you want to make it, but it can be pretty simple too. Believe in the Lord, your, in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We're all sinful, all of us. We know it. That's the basic, right? There's one way of salvation. That's to turn to Christ away from our life of sin and self-service to serve him by loving others instead. It is a simple message, but it's a beautiful message of hope. And you know that message. Don't worry about how well you can say the message Just say the message. And what if they don't believe it? Well, Paul tells us that, you know, he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Some will believe. Some will not believe. God's sovereign over both, and that's not your job. He has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. It wasn't Moses' job to persuade Pharaoh. He was explicitly told that he would fail. He was to try, but he was told that he was going to fail. So you do know the name, the only name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved, that of Jesus Christ. God will give you the words, and God will be with you. He will give you success, hardening those who are to be hardened and revealing the mercy of God to those who will listen. There's a cautionary word here, though, isn't there? God didn't get angry until Moses just outright refused. Well, we've been tasked by God. We are his servants 
bought with the blood of Christ, and we've been commanded to share our faith with others. So, examine your speech. What do you talk about? How is Christ represented in your life? And how are you acknowledging Him before men? Now, who among us wouldn't feel guilty at those questions? My job isn't to let you wallow in guilt. Yes, you have a calling to raise up disciples. Yes, you have a service to perform for your Lord to acknowledge Jesus Christ before men. And yes, you, like the rest of us, fall very far short of what might be expected of you. As those purchased by Christ out of slavery for just this one simple service. But that's not the end of the story, it's the beginning. From here, we repent. We, yeah, we recognize that we fall short. And so we repent. And that's the very news that we share, isn't it? We're, we're just doing what we're told to do. We're told to share with people that if they will repent and turn to Christ, He will guide them, He will save them, He will deliver them, He will feed them. Well, are we just recognizing how far short we fall? Let's repent. And let's begin to speak up the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it is such great news that you have given us to share. It is no wonder you tell us that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. And yet, Father, we so often, I don't know whether we are concerned with what others will think of us or, or uh, doubtful of ourselves, but Father, we just ask that you would encourage us, remind us that you are with us, that you made our mouths, that you are, you are the source of any wisdom that we do have. And so, Father, we ask that you would trust us, that you would help us to trust you and just uh, re rely upon you in those moments, that, uh, that you would give us opportunity to share with others the goodness of your grace, and that when we find ourselves with that opportunity, Lord, we ask that you would give us the zeal, the fidelity, give us the, uh, the power to speak. And Father, we ask that you would glorify your name as we do so. We ask it for Christ's sake, his kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.